Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. And my name is Todd Dixonball, a.k.a. The Todd Father. And we have a great episode for you today. Today, we are talking with Adrian Pay, and he is an organizational development consultant and leadership trainer in uh, diversity. And as it specifically pertains to minority groups and their experiences in organizations. And he recently released a book called The Minority Experience, Navigating Emotional and Organizational Realities. This is a conversation you and I, we like to have a lot. Uh, We like to bring in people to talk to us and give us different perspectives um, about what this type of stuff looks like. And he is a strong, strong person to have this conversation with. um, Because one of the things that we haven't really touched on, a little bit maybe whenever we talked um, about women in leadership and in, and in business world is what does it look like for other minorities as it pertains to the corporate world, businesses, working in those environments. And so strong conversation to help us kind of be able to f- give framework to what that looks like and that type of experience, which is something we haven't really touched on yet. So I'm excited for this. Yeah. And some of those conversations that you were referencing, if you want to see some of those past episodes, um, we'll link to all of those in the show notes as well. However, before we get into this conversation, we have our Learner's Corner recommended resource of the week. What do we got? It's me. And guess what we have? I've been reading this book, and I just finished it um, this past week, and it's called The Art of Possibility. It's by Benjamin Zander, and him and his wife, um, Rosamond, she wrote this along with him. And the interesting thing about this book is well first off let's let's put this into context ben, uh, uh, ben zander is probably one of the best uh orchestra conductors in the world ever i mean of all time and so that just should give you a little bit of an insight into mindset this is a little bit older book it's about it was written um about 2000 2001 somewhere in there however they did a reprint of it and I, that's how i found it and uh, phenomenal talking about art of possibility. It's it's a book for people who tend to dream a lot and people who tend to want to have structure around that to help you gather, put together a framework for how to do that effectively. But him and his wife wrote this book together and he's kind of the dreamer out there kind of guy. And then she's the one who kind of comes along and says, okay, but how are we going to execute this? And what type of framework needs built to help us do that phenomenal read um it's a it's a bestseller to new, it's a new york times bestseller um everything is published out by uh penguin books um so go go grab that it's a great great read um phenomenal uh benjamin zander has given several ted talks as well so he's i think he's given two i'm pretty sure it's two ted talks um so really interesting dude great book that's our resource of the week we also want to let you know about a couple other things coming up. The first is this, is that we're going to be at the Together Conference Together. at the end of this month. It is on Saturday, September 29th, and it is going to be a conference that if you are in the Akron area of Ohio, you are not going to want to miss. Be we there. Last year, it's a great conference, and really what it's about, it's rejoicing, reconciling, and reimagining the church in Akron for gospel saturation and uh, some of our friends are putting it on. We'll be at the conference. It's a half-day conference, and there's also going to be a concert with the hip-hop artist Swoop, and so you just don't want to miss it. By the way, don't miss it. Swoop is from Akron. People don't people forget that. Um, his, his Probably one of his more famous songs called All the Time, he actually talks about in the song one of the lines is, um, I'm from LeBron City. Uh, I need to be trying. I'm just trying to get uh, a Kia, like the king. So y'all, there you, you go. need to check it out, uh, check out Swoop stuff, and then come to Together Conference. We were there last year. Um, actually, on for Together Conference, I, I know I said this for the for the uh, intro last week, but they're actually putting out all the talks that they had from last year. So if you're kind of on the fence wondering, you know, is this for me, go on their website, Citizens Akron, I, yep. is it .org or .com, whatever. Caleb will link to it in the show notes. And uh, they're giving all their talks out on their podcast, Citizens Akron uh, podcast. And so you can grab those and, and just check it out, see what um, see what you think. And then I would really encourage you to come. Uh, Caleb and I love to go to stuff like this because it gives us a different perspective, helps us to see things in a different way, a different light, so that we can be able to to understand the the experience of others and gain 
um, for me, gained some more uh, emotional intelligence as to what's going on reading rooms, and also um, empathy to be able to to, to hear and, and understand a little bit more. I'm not not completely. You're not gonna be. I'm not gonna be able to understand others' experiences completely because they're not my own. Um, but help me in the. It helps me in the empathy department to begin to be able to to understand a little bit more. And then we're also going to be at uh, an, at an Orange Tour site in, oh, yeah. on September 25th, which is a Tuesday. Is we're going to be at Lancaster. Nope, Lancaster. Lancaster. We'll work on it. Okay. We have a five-hour drive. Maybe, maybe we'll by the time that we get there, we'll we'll work I'll on have it. it. But that's going to be uh, we're going to be there, and then we're also going to be at the Catalyst Conference at the beginning of October as well. Yep. And so if you're either if you're planning on going to either one of those things. Let us know. Hit us up. We would love to. Or um, all three of them, man. Like we've got hey, those. Are three or if you're things. going to all, if you, whatever you're going to, let us know. We would love for you to stop by and say hi. Because we're cool like that. As long as you buy me coffee. You don't have to buy Todd coffee. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we have a great episode today. Today we are talking with Adrian Pay. And so without any further wait, here is our conversation with Adrian well, Adrian, welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. We are so excited to have you on today. Thanks so much for having me. Love your show. You know, just as we're getting started, you um, have released a book about minorities in the workplace. And just as we're getting started, can you describe the experience that someone who is in a minority group um, might have in a typical workplace? I don't want to overgeneralize, of course, right? Because mm-hmm. there's differences from yeah. one person to another. Um, but I think in general, what I've experienced and what I hear a lot of other minorities experience is that there's just additional layers that they have to think about. So, I mean, on, on a basic level, right, there's the how many leaders in the workplace look like them, you know, on a very, just, if you just go skin deep, right? Yep. But then even beyond skin deep, you kind of go to, is there intentionality when it comes to really valuing and listening to people who are similar to them? So for perspectives and backgrounds, and I think it all you know, impacts the deeper level of questions that they might ask themselves. Like, you know, is this a place where I could be myself? Is this a place where I could succeed? Could I be a future leader working here? So those are some questions they ask themselves. And you may kind of notice there's a little bit of a, often a degree of uncertainty or self-doubt they may feel, um, whether they've experienced rejection on a work or a social level. They may wonder uh, if it has to do with the fact that they're minorities. Um, you know, there's, I think a lot of people are familiar with uh, Sheryl Sandberg's work uh, with, uh, you know, Lean In and why there are few women leaders in the workplace. And, you know, a lot of times women may not apply for positions unless they feel they can fit all the qualifications in a particular job, uh, whereas men will just apply anyway. And so some minorities will hold themselves back because they kind of face that uncertainty. You know, is it okay for me to be myself? Will I be accepted for who I am? So um, I think, you know, a lot of minorities will kind of try hard to fit into the existing workplace, uh, consciously or subconsciously, wanting to fit in. And so that's kind of what I experienced and what I hear from other minorities. And I do write about that in the first couple of chapters of the book. Yeah. And can you just tell us a little bit, was there something in particular uh, that made you want to write this book? Yes. Um, so, you know, it... You know, through my decade of working for crew, well, you know, working with uh, ethnic minority organization Epic, which is the Asian American Ministry of Crew, um, I kind of kept a journal of sorts of my experiences as a minority in the organization, just raw and honest feelings and thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really share that with anybody. And then, you know, on several occasions, I was asked to speak uh, and shared excerpts from that journal. And I was kind of hesitant at first about how they'd be received uh, because I just didn't know, you know, they want, do they want to hear my journal, right? Mm-hmm. But um, I noticed after I shared my writings and my experiences, um, the minorities in the room uh, were in tears. And by the way, that's, I think, in a good way, hopefully not a bad way, good tears, right? So they, they, they were connecting. Um, and I think that what I noticed when they talked to me afterwards was that they felt seen and understood. Um, and there was some kind of healing it almost like some kind of healing they were going through when they were just by listening to my story. It's kind of odd. You know, they were listening to my story, but they were, you know, it, it moved and they were kind of going through some kind of healing process. Mm-hmm. Um, and then not only that, but, you know, my white coworkers in the organization, they also seemed to kind of be moved and they thanked me and they said, please share more. And, um, I realized kind of in that process, there was something about sharing the emotional realities of being a minority 
that was more powerful than simply training people about language and customs. Because I think that sometimes there's like, what I've seen in both the corporate and industry environments is that a lot of times uh, initiatives go to like uh, cultural competency learning or training. And that's all good stuff. But I think that there was a deeper emotional realities that were not addressed as much. So uh, bottom line is that I, it took me many years, but I kind of revised that journal essentially, added research from leading thinkers um, on race and organization development today. Um, stories from history uh, that have been kind of overlooked, and that kind of became my book. So, so I'm just kind of curious: have have there been any, you know, maybe major historical events or anything like that that have contributed to minorities being my, or marginalized in the workplace? Yeah, I really appreciate that question. I think that's a deeper question because you know you do see, you know, when you hear about marginalization today in the news, right? I mean, mm-hmm. every day you hear stories of. Yeah, discrimination or somebody who say had a faux pas like was a celebrity you know um, an athlete or you know some ceo somewhere you know public apology and then they the organizational leader is asked to step down and leave the position for a while and then the organization makes a statement this is unacceptable and then they put on a cultural sensitive training for all employees you know and then it kind of happens again right mm-hmm. but i think your question really gets to um yeah, deeper in terms of like historically what could have happened. Um, I think that, you know, there's definitely a lot of uh, events that have happened. I mean, one that comes to mind is, you know, it was only uh, a few generations, a couple of generations ago that there was World War II, you know, and you had, um, in the, in the, with the kind of U.S. and Japan being at war, there was internment camps of Japanese Americans um, who were kind of uh, put into these uh, uh these horrific conditions. Um, and a lot of times I think the thing that was really challenging about that was that, you know, there was kind of um, people from Japan, but then a lot of the Japanese Americans had been, um, you know, had been living in the United States for many generations, you know, in California, you have third or fourth generation Japanese Americans. So, you know, a lot of them had, and it probably may not have been to Japan, you know, but because there wasn't necessarily a differentiation between, um, uh, Japan, the country that U.S. is at war, and the Japanese Americans. I mean, you even had Japanese Americans who were fighting in World War II for the U.S., right? So you look at something like that where there's negative propaganda, you know, about kind of like about, you know, towards Japanese Americans, and then, you know, Japanese Americans will experience that, um, you know, even though it may be directed more towards the war effort. So things like that, you know, are things that kind of, and then you look at any other, all the other minority groups, you know, there really have, it hasn't been that long since there's been like really a lot of examples of cross-cultural kind of trauma or conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at Korean War, Vietnam War, you look at, um, there's so many examples. And of course, you have Native Americans who are driven from the homeland. You have, you know, Latinos who, you know, kind of were driven often from, from their homeland as well. So you have a lot of examples in the civil rights movement, of course, and just the, you know, not too long ago, if you think about it. So those things are all things that really do have an impact on the image, you know, and the experiences of minorities. And so you think about things like, um, you know, bias when it comes to talk about bias when it comes to like, you know, certain practices of hiring or whatnot. And, you know, it's not a stretch to think that, you know, there's there's some uh, impact in terms of what's happened in the past and the way that people perceive groups uh, from past events where there have been conflict even recently. Adrian, I think that when people think of uh, marginalization, the, the word that pops into their head is racism or sexism mm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. What? But but it isn't always necessarily overt. Can you talk mm-hmm. us a little bit about what more the, the more covert experience might be? Because I think that for most people, mm-hmm. whenever they think of overt racism or sexism, they think of the Charlottesville uh, stuff that happened, or they think mm-hmm. they think mm-hmm. of uh, the Me Too movement with Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Can, can you just talk mm-hmm. us a little bit about more of the covert side of what that looks like? Yeah, and you know, I think that... My book really talks about it from the you know my primary audience is really you know ethnic minorities and their experiences, but of course I you know I was also thinking about you know those from majority culture who are interested in the minority experience and what it's like and so I mean just primarily from speaking as a minority you know some of the things that we experience um, aren't just that overt racism like you said it's just simply the the feeling of uh, do maybe having fewer uh, opportunities, you know, or representation, you know, and um, feeling the pressure of like, you know, do people understand me? Um, 
and and then kind of there obviously are negative stereotypes uh, that may be in the media, things like that. So there are those level levels of things that really kind of can wear people down. Um, there's you know actually there's that movie that's really getting a lot of buzz right now, Crazy Rich Asians. I don't yes. know if you guys I'm sure you've heard of that, right? Yeah, <laughs> see it over the social media feeds and whatnot. Um, and you know that movie is really interesting because it's like. Uh, it's really generating a lot of buzz uh, among people that I know and an emotional reaction. And I'm kind of was, you know, thinking about it. I was like, why is it getting such a strong reaction? And a lot of people are talking about the idea of just because there's been a lack of representation for so long and maybe even negative uh, images. Like there was this movie a while back, a documentary called The Slanted Screen, which was done about kind of how a lot of Asians in Hollywood have been portrayed as being the bad guys in movies. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know if you heard about that one. Yes, but, I have, um, actually. It, yeah. So it's really like, you know, with this movie, it, you know, there's such an emotional reaction because it was like, you know, oh, finally there's some positive, you know, examples and there's more representation. And so it's like, you can kind of see how the past kind of impacts that, where it's like when there's a lack of all that stuff, there's a, this incredible emotional um, uh, reaction to this movie. But you also, I noticed a lot of my um, Asian American friends and and even people, minorities who are not Asian American, kind of going to that movie and feeling a little bit like nervous. And, um, you know, so like, for example, some of my Asian American friends would say, you know, like, I, I, when I watched the movie, I was kind of excited, but I was just kind of nervous because, you know, this is our, this is kind of a, there's not many opportunities. And so if it doesn't reflect on us well, then what's that going to do? Will we not get, a, not get a chance for a while or what will happen? Um, so it's like extra pressure and then extra pressure on the actors too. You know, um, uh, actually I write about this in my book, um, in chapter two, but, um, there was a New York times article that quoted about Asian Americans competing for acting roles and Constance Wu, who's one of the stars of crazy rich Asians yes. talks about this and just says, you know, an Asian person who's competing against uh, white people for an audience of white people has to train for the opportunity, like it's the Olympics, you know, you might be, they may be a, a talented Asian actor might be considered for a leading role, maybe once or twice in a lifetime. And that's a very pressure, pressurized situation. So it's kind of that extra pressure you feel that kind of can wear you down. Um, so I think that's all what I, I would say is kind of like the minority experience is that you feel kind of that sense of like, so even if there's not overt racism, you kind of feel that sense of like limited opportunities. Uh, you know, I need to be always on in my, in my top form or I may not get another chance. Um, you kind of doubt yourself. You try to fit in. You have to work harder. Uh, so those are the kind of things that I think about. What are some other unique challenges uh, minority groups face in organizations where they're, where they're um, you know, obviously it, it, they're not part of the majority? What are some other of those those unique challenges? And, and I guess with this question, too, I'm thinking about, um, you know, uh, female, um, female yeah. ethnic minorities versus, you know, I, I think – you know, even even if if you're a minority, but you're 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 male, you're still, especially in in the corporate world, you're definitely still a part of at least a type of majority. So that's so let's let yes. I just wanted to frame that question in that way. That's a, I really appreciate that question, um, and I think you you really hit the nail on the head in the sense that like that's an extra layer for I think minority women, women right? You know, so there's that layer for extra layer of things to consider for minorities, you know, in terms of just ethnicity, but then you also have if they're women. And that's an area where I think I've really been trying to um, learn and listen um, in the past decade, because I think I was blind to the ways that I had certain privilege and, and power and access that women didn't have. And I think for me, you know, for those who are kind of more privileged, it's really very easy to not see it. So, you know, like I would kind of, my default is just, is not to think about anything, but then if I don't, I'm not intentional thinking about women's experiences, then it kind of defaults to men are more to, to, towards men, to men more because that's kind of the way it's been. So I think I've, been, I've learned to even be more intentional. And even something as simple as like, you know, I was running like um, uh, a ser an article series for, for work. And I realized, you know, after doing the first three articles that they were all men that I featured and I didn't even think about it. And then I realized that, oh, wow, it's like that just defaulted. You know, and I and I have to think about like, you know, like, am I really representing women as well? And so I think that was something I really had to kind of go away from the default and be intentional about it. I think it requires that when there's an, an imbalance. Um, and so I think that women, you know, I mean, I think your question, I mean, again, I mentioned Sheryl Sandberg, but 
you know, there's that idea of kind of like, um, you know, you really do have kind of a lot of gas there and that, that, that feeling of like, you know, uh, women who tend to kind of question themselves or kind of feel like, you know, um, do I, do I really put myself forward for this position? Um, and then can I be myself, you know, or do I need to kind of, uh, be more, act more like what I see around me from male leaders, whatever qualities that may be, or can I just be myself and be considered a leader? So I think there's some similarities there, but I think that there's extra layers that women have to think about. As you were doing the research for this book, uh, what was something that was maybe surprising to you? Um, as you were you were writing, uh, as you were researching, as you were talking with others about it, what was something that was surprising to you? Either in a positive or a negative yeah. way. It could be either way. Sure. I think one thing that really surprised me was that how little was new. Like, because I did a lot of uh, research into the past. So, I mean, like, I think studying, like, current experts on race and identity was really helpful. And I really, like, you know, learned a lot uh, from uh, some of their great work. But when I studied kind of like history, like in terms of like some of the stories from the past and what's been happening, it really struck me how such less, a lot of things have not changed as much as as you might think. So sometimes I hear people say these days kind of like, you know, oh, it's like, it's, uh, it's so, it's so, everything is so polarized right now. And it's so divided, one of the most divisive issues right now. And I can understand that. But then it was, there were times in the past where it was also that way. You know, you kind of look back way back in history to the, you know, even centuries ago. And, you know, it, it was really, there were a lot of conflict back then too. And so and you hear a lot of that kind of back and forth between majority and minority cultures. I talk about kind of racial reaction in my book and kind of just like how you had, you know, even when there was kind of advancement for say African-Americans, then you kind of had like a uh, kind of a reaction to that from majority culture. And then throughout different events, whether it was through, after slavery with the Black Codes or, you know, Jim Crow or just, you know, just so a lot of, uh, of that back and forth was happening. So I think that really surprised me because I was thinking, you know, sometimes I like, I think, you know, being in organization development, leadership development, we like to think that we're, you know, making a lot of positive change, you know, and that a lot of things we can do. And there are great things we can do, but I think it just kind of surprised me how, like, uh, how much hadn't changed in some ways. If you had somebody that came to you and asked, hey, Adrian, um, I'm looking to, to learn more, um, who would be um, some authors or people that you would point them towards? And that could either be people from the Asian community or other minority communities. Uh, and maybe these are people yeah. that you used in your research or maybe they're not. Sure. Yeah, definitely. I have a lot of examples. I don't know um, how long you want <laughs> the list, but um, I, my, my top – Give us a couple, you know, yeah. Okay, okay. So yeah, my, I mean, I really appreciated uh, Beverly Daniel Tatum's book, uh, Why Are the Black Kids Sitting in the Cafeteria? Um, you know, she's one of the foremost uh, leaders on race and identity. And so that book is a really uh, accessible book. And, um, and it just is what I found very helpful in terms of understanding race and identity. Um, from a historical standpoint, I really, really liked um, Ronald Takaki, um, the late Ronald Takaki. He uh, wrote this book called A Different Mirror. Um, a history of multicultural America, I believe it's called. And um, it, that book is, I think, probably my top five in terms of just like understanding the history of the United States. Um, I just think, I think, I feel like almost every chapter I was thinking, wow, this blew me away just because I was thinking, wow, I didn't understand the roots of, you know, the, diff, uh, the non-European migrations to the United States. He talks a lot about how, you know, like a lot of times, a lot of the history books have focused on European migrations, but, you know, there were migrations from many other countries really a lot earlier than people realize. And so um, that was, that's a huge book that, that helped me a lot. And then, you know, there's, um, uh, there's a lot of stories too, like, you know, um, the story of Sylvia Mendez uh, was really impactful for me uh, from the Latino community of understanding what she did to advocate, uh, even before Brown, you know, the education, Brown versus Board of Education case. Um, and then uh, Walter Littleman's book, They Called Me Uncivilized, which I talk about, which, again, was just really moving for me, mm -hmm. uh, when he talked about his experiences with Lakota, Lakota and kind of um, being kind of um, worn down by attempts to kind of um, make him more of the majority culture. I remember reading that book and just was in tears. I was just thinking, wow, I, you know, and I can never understand fully what he went through. Um, and yet there were aspects of it that I could relate to on a very minor level, like 10%, like 5% of what he experienced. But I was like, wow, I think, I wonder if other minorities could also kind of relate to this feeling of like, 
uh, kind of being forced to be like someone, someone else, if that makes sense, even though we wouldn't have experienced nearly close to what he experienced and what the Lakota have experienced. Sure. Hey, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and and, and focus on something um, a little bit different. And the question that I really was curious about is, do different generations experience this differently within the workplace? Or is it pretty much a a similar baseline experience that that you found as you were doing research for this? Right. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, again, I... Yeah, wouldn't want to overgeneralize, right? So, uh, and I think that your question does get to that, is that there, beyond just ethnicity and gender, there are generational differences. And I think that's absolutely true. I was actually just talking about that with a friend the other day. Um, and it goes back to historical realities. You know, if you think about it, uh, the minority groups, and you go back the furthest, obviously you have Native Americans uh, who, you know, this is their homeland. And so their experience is being ousted. From their home and land, right, and and some Latinos as well later on, um, and then you have minorities who immigrated to the U.S. Um, early on for opportunity, you know, and so uh, and similar to the white settlers coming for opportunity. Then you have, um, and that's like my my parents as well. My parents were kind of in that group. Then you have refugees, right, who fled who fled their homeland to the U.S. Um, and then you have, so that may have not have been where they wanted to go. That wasn't their top choice necessarily, but they fled. And this is the place that they could find haven. Um, then you have minorities who are born in the U.S., like me, and some people who have their generations they've been in the U.S. So each of those situations is different, you know, if you think about that. So I think that what I think about is kind of like if you've been ousted from your home, you know, I'd imagine you kind of feel this, well, the greatest sense of injustice, right? Um if I were in the workplace, I might, for example, question the people who are making the rules in my workplace, you know, like, you know, that kind of sense of injustice. Um, whereas those who immigrated, you know, maybe maybe you want to try to fit in because, you know, you're kind of looking for opportunity. Um, again, I want to overgeneralize. It's not true for everybody. Um, for refugees, it may be different. You know, maybe they, their context was trying to find support and safety uh, with people like them. Um, for those who have lived here for a while, it's different. So I guess, you know, not to overgeneralize, but if we pay attention to the historical circumstances of the different generations and groups, it helps us understand kind of their experiences in the workplace even, you know, and why they're doing what they do. So looking back a little further in history than you might normally think can actually help to kind of provide insight. Mm-hmm. So I want to uh, switch gears a little bit. And the next thing I want to mm-hmm. ask is, you know, we've, what would you say are some of the benefits to having a more diverse organization that has uh, more minority representation in it? Right. And this is interesting, you know, working in the corporate environment right now, um, you kind of hear the way that people talk about it, and then there's the ministry component. So what, what I know, you know, definitely in the business environment, you definitely hear a lot of people talk about how the all of the research out there, the recent research on, you know, highest performance on teams and organizations comes out of diversity. Um, now, there's, there's a, in my book, I talk about uh, um, London Business School professor Randall Peterson, who... Uh, I listened to a seminar he gave, and he, he did a lot of research on high-performing and diverse teams and talks about how when you manage uh, diverse teams well, it produces the highest performance. But if you don't manage it well, it can lead to lower performance, actually, than the average. So it can be kind of a double-edged sword uh, because, you know, when you're dealing with diversity, you have to deal with conflict, differences. You know, it, it takes more intentionality. And if you just default to doing what you normally do without paying attention to it, it could be you know, not so helpful. So they, I think a lot of the business world, we talk about, you know, business performance and business impact being uh, strengthened when you have diversity. And I think there's, you know, there's obviously some connections there in terms of like, okay, you know, whatever field you're in, uh, a lot of times it's important to be in touch with the customer and the market, right? And, uh, you know, when you look at, say, an organization that is, you know, let's say it's 90%. Uh, majority culture, ninety percent white. You know, does that really reflect even the United States in the society, right? And you kind of think that, well, you know, if you if 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 you're trying to reach people and be in touch with what they need and what they want to give better service to them or better products, whatever it is, you you have to kind of be in touch with them. And when you have more diversity, then you have people who really are in touch with that. And so, you know, you have whether it's you know Latinos or whatever, or women, whatever it may be, you know, is it reflective of society? So there's that. There's also innovation with leadership. You know, like I think that most organizations probably don't want to just play catch up. 
even though I think sometimes a lot of organizations feel like they are catching up in terms of diversity, but they really want to anticipate the future trends to lead the way into the future. And to me, I really think that diversity is one of the best ways to get there because, you know, you take someone from a different culture um, and if they're asked to bring their best, her our best ideas, contributions to the table out of who they are, you know, they're going to bring up ideas that I would never have thought of um, and, and kind of things that even uh, are in the future, you know, and if we're behind in our organization, then in some ways, you know, just having diversity uh, that reflects society, even at a baseline, is going to be actually ahead of the game. It's going to be innovative, you know. Um, so there's that. Um, but I think that, you know, beyond all that, you know, also in the business world, they talk about, you know, there's a component that talks about dignity, you know. And I think that definitely in the ministry world, you get that in terms of like there's also like kind of a qualitative value, right? You know, for those who believe in God, it's, you know, reflecting the image of God and more fullness. Um, and, you know, really. Um, there's a justice component too, you know, giving, you know, you know, Jesus talks about, you know, the, the weak, uh, those who are on the margins, you know, and the first shall be last, the last shall be first. So it's kingdom, kingdom of God mentality, I think, you know, where there's an aspect of really giving voice to those who haven't had that. And so there's unique dignity and value and, and, in, in that as well. So a couple of thoughts. One of the things I wanted to go back to that you said earlier, you were talking about how um, there's studies that have been done that show that um, diversity is a great thing and produces great results if it's managed well, but it actually um, can hurt a, a, a team if it's not managed well. How, as leaders, how can we um, help to manage diverse teams well? How do we do that to be able to produce the best results? Because I think that it, for most leaders, they're, they're going to they're going to raise their hand and say. You know, I want mm -hmm. to be able to lead a group of diverse people well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes great sense. And, and, and you know, um, uh, I would say that there's a couple of levels of this. So there's, you know, on a high level and there's kind of some practical ideas. So I think it all comes down to leaders who are, you know, are learners, you know, so to your podcast, you know, really people who are looking to learn and really grow and then who are intentional about what they do. And so, and very often those leaders have to do less than they think. I think sometimes we maybe do too much. I mean, I think when it comes to um, majority culture leaders, I think that for me, what I found is the best leaders are leaders who simply listen a lot, uh, listen and learn. And so a lot of times when, say, there's a team leader, you know, and they're really trying to understand, um, I think it really helps if the, if the leader will just, you know, get to know um, the minorities in their organization, on their team, just listen and understand some of what they've been through. And no answers, no counterpoints for a while. Just don't try to listen, list the things that they've also experienced, but just listen and understand first. And maybe later, you know, round two or three or in the future, you can start to kind of engage more. But I think that's kind of really a, really a big foundation for that. Um, and then kind of intentionality in leading um, their team. So, you know, one thing that I you know, I think a lot of people would be able to uh, relate to is that you know, when you have a team, very often you want to have a team discussion about how you'll operate as a team, like kind of the norms for the team, like, you know, how will we engage things like communication, decision making, um, uh, when there's conflict, um, those types of things. And I think just having that upfront conversation with the team and just acknowledging the diversity in the room and saying, you know, we value diversity. And we don't want just groupthink, you know, or like, you know, domination of one kind of group or person or leader. You know, we, we acknowledge their differences and we want to draw that out. And how can we do that effectively and getting that feedback from the team? So I think leaders who can do that, who can learn and listen and then kind of have the intentionality and, and, and holding those meetings and things like that and checking in with their members. I feel like that's it's very doable. You know, I think especially people who are who are looking to learn, like people on, on your show. <laughs> so. So. I'm just curious, what advice would you give uh, to the leader who's looking to start that conversation with somebody? Because once mm. you get into the conversation, you know, mm. it's, it's a little bit easier, but sometimes it's the starting point or, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So what advice would you give to someone who's looking to start that conversation? And do you mean like a conversation, like a one-on-one -on -one conversation or a team conversation? Both. Both a one-on-one -on -one yeah. conversation with someone and then with the team mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, 
um, I would say for the the one-on-one conversation, it really depends on the relationship you have with that person. You know, I mean, if you don't know the person at all, it's a little weird to kind of go up and just say, so tell me, you know, like, let's talk about the, you know, Japanese internment cancer, you know, like, you know, you know that intense, you know, it's, that's kind of too much, right? Yep. But, you know, I think getting to know them first, right? Just get to know them. I mean, that ask, asking natural questions about their family background, their cultural background are pretty innocuous things to ask about. Um, one thing that I really enjoy doing is just learning about people's families, you know, and kind of just like saying, so, you know, like, um, you know, uh, kind of finding more about how they grew up and kind of the, the, the influences that shape them, um, in terms of their parents, their values, you know, maybe religion too, if they want to go there, but culturally as well. So those are some of the things that often people can talk about, um, pretty easily. And then, you know, after a couple rounds of that, you know, I think, you know, there could be, and then listening again, listening, right. But then after a couple rounds of that, you know, being able to really, um, you know, I think acknowledge, you know, if there wants to be more intentionality, just kind of saying, um, you know, look, you know, I, I've been learning about, I've been trying to learn about race and ethnicity and whatnot. And, um, this is kind of the journey that I'm on right now, you know, and kind of just being upfront about it. You know, and I think it's always helpful at a certain point when you have some trust with a person to be upfront and not try to kind of be too passive aggressive about it. Sometimes I think that, you know, majority culture people I've noticed are very hesitant because they don't want to abuse their power, you know, and they kind of like when, so if I ask uh, a white person for feedback, they may just say, oh, it's great, you know, and it's like, do they really think it's great or they just not want to be critical because they're worried about how they'll come across. And for me, I kind of say, I appreciate it. You know, obviously there needs to be some trust there. But if they just are upfront with me and just say, you know what, like, I'm kind of hesitant, like, you know, like, I, 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 you know, really, you know, want to, to be helpful in this project, but I recognize that I, you know, I'm, I am white and I might be insensitive about certain things. And so I just need your, your feedback and your help on like how to, you know, even give you feedback, you know, and because I want to really do, be honest with you and not just kind of say everything is, you know, not, not give you any kind of meaningful conversation, you know, or feedback in this project, you know, so that's what I'd say for that. I'd say for the team, uh, for the team conversation, um, I think that is something where, you know, um, again, there needs to be trust built, but I think that norms conversation can really help, you know, just kind of just talking about, you know, and very often teams can do a team building exercise and kind of talking first about kind of a little bit about themselves personally, you know, kind of their background and whatnot, and then kind of doing the norms conversation. You kind of talk about how will we operate. And often that brings up differences very naturally. So I don't, yeah, hope that gave you some, some thoughts, but yeah, yeah follow up questions, let me know. Yep, definitely. So the next thing I want to ask about is, so we've talked a lot about the person who is kind of in charge of the organization mm-hmm. and what they can do, but what about the person who, you know, they, they want to help influence and make, bring more representation throughout the organization, but they may not be in charge. What advice would you give to that person? Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that in some ways that's an organizational development question, which is my field of, of area where it's kind of like, how do you make an influence when you don't have, you're not at the top, yeah. you know? And, and I think that that's, that's, there's a lot of theories out there about that. Um, I, and whether or not you could, what to what extent you can change things on uh, different levels. I, I mean, I'll speak out of our experience uh, working with Epic, which was the Asian American Ministry of Crew, was that, you know, even though we weren't at the top of the organization, you know, kind of what we focused on was really, you know, um, creating an environment within Epic in the Asian American uh, organization where we provided a safe place for 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 people to be. And to kind of be able to share their voice and to focus on uh, their identity. And so I think that, you know, and we're talking about core values and things like that. So I think that um, there's a lot of things that leaders can do, even if they don't have power, in terms of really like being able to, um, you know, just uh, try, you know, mobilize other people, peers, you know, to connect with them, to form those groups. There's a lot of, in, in, the, in, the, in the business environment, I see a lot of kind of leadership cohorts that are kind of starting to develop among a lot of employees who kind of may not have the highest ranks, but they're kind of looking for support um, and camaraderie. And very often when you have enough people who kind of like you get together, who have a common voice, you know, and you kind of have, get the right, get the right support from the right leaders in the organization who are kind of backing that and who are noticing it, you know, very often you can do quite a bit because, you know, often the, the leaders at the top, they want to listen to the people. And when you have a lot of people who are saying something or kind of in that group and, uh, or, you know, even providing some kind of, even a, uh, it's tied to the business in terms of like, you know, um, 
okay, this whole group here is getting together to kind of for support, but also to kind of research, you know, the value of diversity or the value of kind of like how diversity impacts the industry, whatever it may be, say that. Then it's like you have that group and like, you know, the, the executives are looking at that going like, this is great. You know, this is going to help our business. It's going to move us forward. And there's a lot of people who are behind this. And so very often you can kind of mobilize that on a peer level, even if you don't have power. So I think some of those things can really help. I would say getting peer support, um, building, finding like-minded people and kind of really gathering that and then kind of you know, mobilizing the cause um, for whatever it may be. So the next thing I want to ask about is what can an organization do to intentionally pursue diversity? Because I think just one thing that we've learned throughout the podcast, and we were mm-hmm. going to talk about this today, is that diversity is something that you need to intentionally pursue and fight for because it naturally does not happen. Um, and so mm-hmm. what can an organization do to even, um, I don't know if systematize is the right word, mm-hmm. but, um, mm-hmm. but to just make it easier, that way we're not ending up with a, gen- a bunch of white people or with white men mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. Yes, yes. Uh, again, a very big question. And, you know, I did spend a chapter, chapter five of my book talks, the seven steps of kind of like leading the organizational role for diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's some practical ideas there. Um, I, I would say that, you know, it really, um, it really starts with organizations really looking at, you know, I, I would say, you know, there's a component where there needs to be not just kind of a, um, sometimes diversity can kind of become this um, means to an end or kind of like it gets delegated to one department, kind of like diversity and inclusion or whatever it is, or, you know, and I understand why that's done, but I think that a lot of organizations need to be thinking about it as integrated with everything they're doing. So um, again, it depends on what kind of group you're in, but regardless of most organizations out there, they'll have things like hiring practices, they'll have things like recruiting and hiring, they'll have practices about training, uh, leadership development, they'll have um, you know, development programs, you'll have, so there's a lot of components. Uh, it's, if you think of kind of the life uh, or the, the career journey of, a, of an employee. And so really thinking about each of those areas and kind of like how can we think through diversity at each of those levels, um, so to make sure, you know, so for example, on the recruiting end or, you know, like who, who are the people who are recruiting and what are the, um, the criteria they're using? Mm-hmm. You know, is there like a panel, like some, some organizations are using panels, diversity panels, you know, to kind of like, to have that lens, you know, to be able to kind of like evaluate. And so it's not just completely uh, reliant upon, say an organization is mostly white, right? And then it's like, you're not just relying on that, but you're getting another piece of input. Um, and so there's a lot of ideas that are out there, but really kind of like figuring out how do we integrate it throughout the organization. Um, but I think that like, you know, the biggest thing though, is really like having the right people to lead the process, I feel. And I think very often, you know, a lot of times we focus a lot on the tactics and like getting this, this, that, this and that right. But I think really like, um, Choosing the right people to lead the process is really key. Uh, and I kind of outlined that in my book of really just like, how do you get those right people? And like, what are the criteria you should be looking for? And how should they build a team? And then how can they kind of communicate to the organization and involve them? And so I think if you have leaders, like, I mean, I, I think that's where you could have, you know, you want to have definitely diverse leaders in part of that process. But, you know, I think there's a lot of value in having um, uh, white leaders who, um, will be very uh, collaborative in terms of like they're very involved in like understanding ethnic minorities and interviewing them and whatnot, and especially white whites leaders who have worked under ethnic minorities. I know in Korea there are a lot of people like that, and like those some of the people are some of the greatest best people to consult. Mm-hmm. So I think having the right people involved is really critical. Yeah. So you know I'm just thinking of the person who's listening to this and they're like, oh my goodness, this sounds <laughs> so overwhelming. There's so much to do. Where, where can someone start? Again, I kind of come back to, you know, I, I think that there's a lot, of, a lot of great ideas out there, but really it comes down to what I said before about listening and learning. Mm-hmm. And I would just start, you know, just simply with oneself, you know, and, and maybe, you know, like just where you are at right now. And so, you know, I was thinking about this the other day and, you know, you have um, a you know, there's a lot of opportunities to just do something on a very simple level. Um, so like, you know, for example, let's say that um, for a leader right now who's thinking about what can I do? I think just a real simple step could be to 
you know, say at your workplace, uh, the next time you need input or feedback on a project, just find someone who is a completely different race and background um, as yourself and just get their thoughts. You know, I just they incorporate the feedback, let them know what you took away um, and just kind of start doing that. You know, so just just one simple thing like that, you know, where like you're starting to kind of really getting more diversity into kind of like your input feed. Um, and feedback sources, um, and that just takes a little bit of intentionality, but it's something that can be done no matter where you're at, you know, workplace, uh, friends, church, whatever it may be, just get some, get some thoughts from them, um, and, and just do that one at a time. And slowly, I think people will see that, you know, like through those relationships, through the input feed, you're kind of, you know, getting more diverse input. So it's not just token diversity, you know, and kind of like, or it's not just reading a book too, right? And, you know, it's just something that, or just, you know, taking a class or whatever. It's like something that's in action as well. Yep, definitely. So just as we're wrapping up, we always have a few questions that we love to ask all of our guests. And mm-hmm. the first one is, what's one thing that is helping you either personally or professionally right now? So I think that probably for me, it would be, um, it's actually being involved in both the corporate and ministry worlds, actually, um, because it really helps. It's helping me to understand people overall much better, because otherwise I kind of feel like I'm just seeing one side of things. So like if I'm just in ministry and I kind of like only see certain professionals and certain cultures, but being in the corporate world kind of allows me to see, oh, this is what other people experience there. And kind of at the same time, it's interesting. And, um, and that's really been helpful for me to understand the human experience as a whole better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the other thing is that, you know, if I kind of run into limitations in one of the spheres, there's always kind of the other sphere. Like, you know, so frustrations in the corporate world, I still have the, the ministry sphere. If I have frustrations in the ministry world, I have the corporate sphere to kind of explore more, to continue my learning and growth. I think sometimes I've talked to people who feel a little stuck in their organization. And I think that one thing that's helped me is really to just try being in a different sphere, too. So, like, whether... It, for them, they can maybe try volunteering or taking on a hobby in a totally different community. So just don't stay within. If you're doing ministry, don't stay in church. Go somewhere completely different community. And I think sometimes it kind of expands the horizons. And I, I've seen options that I didn't see before. So that's been very helpful for me. What advice would you give to someone who is eager to learn? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say always be on the lookout for mentors wherever you are. Um, I think a lot of people who are listening to your show are, it's, I mean, honestly, being eager to learn is often more than half the battle because I think a lot of people just, they don't have that kind of spirit. But when you are, I think the next step is really, or one of the helpful steps I found is uh, mentors because I think we learn things through relationships and people that we can't learn elsewhere. And so kind of broadening from, you know, different formats of learning to really through people and through people who can kind of provide that kind of relational input. I think that's probably one of the things that's helped me the most. I've always kind of sought out mentors no matter what stage of life. And I've often had multiple ones and it can be informal mentors too. You know, like you kind of sometimes can trick people into being your mentor or you kind of just like <laughs> keep emailing them and saying, Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think yeah. about that? So why do you think that a lot of people aren't eager to learn or have a resistance to learning? Do you think? I, you know, I, 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 don't, I hesitate to say it's intentional, you know, in the sense of like, they're just like, bad people or something, you know, yeah. I feel like there's blockages for people. I don't know. And, and you guys probably have a lot more insight than you've heard. You talked to a lot of people about this topic, but I feel there's a component of like, there's, they're blocked by something. Um, and something personally or internally, like they, like there's something that um, is keeping them stuck. So whether it's like just it's fear, you know, or anxiety about something that may, may mean if they were having to change uh, something, about themselves or, you know, there's some kind of influence they had, you know, um, from a past experience with their work or family, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I think very often those things come in the way, I feel, um, that kind of get in the way of that. that. So I, I feel like there's a lot of energy that I see in the leadership development world to kind of uh, educate people and just kind of like get them to, to learn more. But I think that often the blockage aspect doesn't get addressed as enough in terms of like, what's okay, we know what we should do. But then when people don't do it, why don't they do it? You know, yeah. um, I, actually, there was, um, you know, like I was thinking about this with uh, I teach a class and there's um, one uh, one thing that comes up, which is that um, there's this guy named um, Alan Fine who wrote this book uh, and developed this coaching model called the Grow Model. And it wrote this book called I Think You Already Know How to Be Great. 
And he talks about kind of like a lot of people, like their blockages are, uh, it's not that they they don't know what to do, but they don't do what they know. Um, And so you think about like, he trained a lot of, you know, tennis professionals, golf professionals, and you think about something like the Olympics, right? You know, people who are training over and over again, it's like, it's not that they don't know what they should do. They've done it thousands of times. I don't know how many times they've done it. Mm-hmm. But then when they mess up, it's like, what really was the issue? You know, it was, they were nervous, you know, or they were fearful of like, what it would mean if they messed up or whatever it is, you know? So it's like, you think about that. It's like, some of that stuff often is like non kind of just educational. It's like, or not knowing what to do. It's like the other stuff that gets in the way, I think. So. Um, as you, as you are, this is a question that came to my mind um, mm. with what you were saying is when, when we're talking about learning, for me, what I, what I oftentimes see is a refusal to want to accept uh, new ideas. Is that something mm. that you feel also is holding people back from, from embracing uh, diversity? And, and if so, like, how do we get around that piece? Hmm. I need the answer to that question. <laughs> I would be uh, right. rich or something. No, no, I mean, it's a great question. I, I, I mean, I think that... Um, uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think what you, your question is very insightful because you're speaking to the fact that I think sometimes we might feel like, oh, diversity, like people might have something specifically against that. And, you know, for some people, maybe they do. But I think what you're, what you're getting at is that, you know, the, the resistance to change is even more broad than just the diversity issue. Um, and that can yeah. impact the diversity issue. Um, I do think when it comes to diversity that there are some things, again, they may be subconscious for people. But there's an aspect where it's like, you know, you know, when I'm dealing with somebody who's very different from me, like, what does that do for me? You know, can I really, is it, how do I engage people who are very different from me? And even is it beneficial for me? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Is it, is it going to, yeah, is it going to be a helpful thing or should I just do it because I, I should? Because you know, I've been told to do it. Right. Because yeah. we need to be politically correct. Yeah. That's, exactly. That's yeah. That a lot. Um, if, if you could have everybody learn one thing. And that thing mm-hmm. could be uh, making the most amazing chocolate chip cookie, or it could be something very highly philosophical. What would that one I, thing be? I was going to say, yeah, to your point, I was going to say you know, making a good cheeseburger would be the first thing that came to mind. I personally think that's very important. You know what I mean? Because I, you know, I love food, and I go to these, a lot of places, and I'm like, you know, sometimes it's just burnt, and I'm just like overcooked, and I'm like, gosh, you know, it's like, why can't? more places just have like a juicy cheeseburger. So I do think about that sometimes, but um, I think on a more serious note, I think, you know, we talked about kind of the blockages, that idea of things. So I think that's probably the thing that I would say is that, you know, when we face, you know, kind of ourselves and the most painful things about ourselves and our past, I think it can be unlock a lot of wonderful and beautiful things. Um, and I think that it takes, it takes courage to do that. But I think very often, you know, like we look on the outside for uh, different things to learn. But I think very often looking at ourselves and kind of really facing those things with honesty and kind of like, what's blocking me? What's, what's holding me back? Mm-hmm. What are the things about changing or engaging people who are different? What are, why, why would that be such a hard thing for me to do personally? And everybody's answer will be different. But asking that question of ourselves, I think that's really critical. And if we can do that, then I think it, it really could unlock amazing things. Uh, it's very hard to do, but, you know, oh, yeah. fortunately, you know, there's uh, people who can support us. And, you know, if we believe in God, there's a grace of God that helps us. So, Yep. And then finally, what are you learning mm-hmm. right now? So I, <laughs> I'm learning how, 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 how can I write and share about a book while also working another full-time job? <laughs> like, there's a lot. Of, I'm learning about prior, prioritization. You know, it's, it's hard, you know, to kind of – but I think that what – okay, so what I'm really learning in terms of that, though, is – I think it's hard for people like myself, like, like including myself, as well as organizations to really focus on one thing at a time. That's what I'm learning. Mm-hmm. I think what I'm noticing is that it's, we're usually tempted to try to do too much. Um, and then we end up kind of doing those, all those things not as well as we could. So I'm kind of learning instead to kind of do one thing at a time to kind of take a high level view of all my projects, kind of ask myself, what am I doing? Just take inventory. What am I doing and why do they matter? Should I keep doing all these things? You know, like, and what's most important right now and why? Um, what's more, what's important that can be done next year or later and why? And then kind of mapping out my priorities in the long-term view. And I find that it's kind of, you know, it's, it sounds simple, but it's kind of, um, it's still something that doesn't get done often enough. And so it's, I've been trying to do that more and I find it helpful. Is there a system or something that you're using to help you 
with that or something that you've created or like you were saying questions or something along those or lines? Or an app. We like apps. <laughs> In addition to doing the job, the two jobs. Yeah. Um, hey, you know, that's a great idea. Maybe that's something you guys are going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't have anything like that. I, 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 um, I just kind of, um, I just run through questions in my mind. So I do ask the question kind of like, well, I mean, you know, it's, it's I list out my projects, right? So whatever kind of uh, project management software, there's a lot of good things out there, right, to use. Kind of mapping out just what are my existing projects. Just get them all down on paper. Like, it can go through my calendar. I can go through whatever it is. Let's see how I'm spending my time. Kind of map it out and just kind of look at each of them and go like, okay, why am I maybe put a Y right next to each one? Why am I doing that? And why am I doing that right now? And and then I kind of like will look at priority order and kind of figure out like pretty simple, just like you know one one to ten or whatever, right? And kind of ranking like what needs to be done now and what needs can be done later, and kind of just try to kind of just so it could be very simple, like just kind of like listing the projects, kind of asking why and then putting number in one through ten or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of gets me to think through. Wait a minute. Oh, I'm doing this, but do I really need to be doing this right now? And kind of doing that later. And maybe it's something that's critical to do, but I can do it two years from now or like six months from now, whatever it is. So I know that's not an app, but <laughs> no, that's okay. That's still very helpful. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for being on the learner's corner today. If people want to continue to learn from you and find your book, where's the best place for them to do that? So my book is now available um, on many different uh, sites. Uh, it, the publisher is University Press, so definitely you can go to uh, ivypress.com, but it's also on amazon.com to search for the minority experience. Um, it's on a lot of other distributors as well. And so it comes out September 4th, so, um, and it can be pre-ordered now. So I appreciate you um, taking the time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Caleb. That was a phenomenal conversation. Oh, yeah. Very insightful. What was something that you came away with from that? I think uh, a couple of things. One, um, and we talked about it in the interview, but just how diversity is something that you have to fight for. You have to work at it. It doesn't happen intentionally. And, you know, that's something that we've experienced here on the podcast. You know, we tried to uh, make sure that everyone is represented, um, but it's more difficult than you think it would be. And then I think the other thing is the importance of listening to other people's stories and being okay with yep. just shutting up and not saying anything, just letting other people talk, asking questions, yep. and then asking more questions, and then just letting them speak and talk about their life and talk about their experience. No, I, I totally agree. Um, I think that... You know, the more and more that I talk to people, one of the things that I hear consistently coming from them is that a major skill to develop is the art of listening and the ability to know when to speak and when not to speak. And and more often than not, our job needs to be not speaking. And I think that you and I experience that a lot on the podcast um, where, you know, we're in situations where it's better for us to not talk um, and just listen and and take it in. And, and listen to what they're saying. Um, and I think that that applies. I think there's direct application with that whenever it comes to um, working with people, you know, on teams and in the workplace, for sure. Agreed. I'm glad we agree. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, the best way to make sure you don't miss our next episode is by subscribing to our podcast on whatever podcast player you use. And we have a phenomenal episode next week. Next week, we are talking with Chip Conley. And we talked with him about his experience at Airbnb and working with them and the keys to working uh, intergenerationally at the workplace. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be lit. As the kids say. So also let us know what you're currently learning about. Let us know what you've learned from our episodes so far on the Learner's Corner as well. Let us know about things that you would, that we can improve guests that you would like to see topics that you would like us to cover and you can do that by leaving a rating and writing a review on whatever podcast player you use we appreciate it It helps us expand our conversation as well because the more ratings and reviews that we get the more that the system that is podcasting expands our reach and becomes more visible to people as well thank you so much for listening to the learner's corner my name is Kayla Mason. And my name is Todd Ball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Peace.